Today's episode of Clip City is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. Yo, 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 this is Jovan Buha, Clippers beat writer for The Athletic and the host of the Clip City podcast. You're now listening to part two of our two-part review answering the preseason questions we had for each Clippers player. Part one came out on Friday and covered Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Jermichael Green. For the rest of the Clippers roster, we are now going to start with Ivica Zubats and go down the line. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> my guy, my, my cousin Zoo. Um, cousin Zoo! <laughs> so <laughs> last season, uh, so the, the, the key stat for Zubats was last season, he shot 56.7% in the restricted area, which is not very good, especially for a seven-footer who's supposed to be able to finish. And at, you know, it frustrated Clipper fans. It was part of the reason why he got benched against the Warriors. Uh, you know, obviously it was more of a small ball defense thing, but he just wasn't finishing, uh, you know, as well. Uh, but the underreported kind of quiet part of everything, which I wrote about multiple times and, and tried to kind of highlight, was Zoo had two hand injuries last season. You know, he had a broken finger in, in one hand and a torn tendon in his other hand. And even, be, you know, I, I remember it, it was it happened early. I think it happened literally right as he came to the Clippers. But I remember there was a game in Utah where I asked him about it and he was just saying how, you know, it's, it's a, such a small thing, but it can really just throw off, you know, the way you catch a ball, the way you go up, you know, kind of your grip on it going up the way, you know, maybe your control of it in the air. If you're lofting a little hook or something, uh, because there was some frustrating times last season where zoo would, not catch a pass in traffic or would, would catch it and go up and it would just slip out of his hands or he'd have a little bunny and he would miss it. And, you know, I, I know he was frustrated by it. I know the coaching staff was frustrated by it. I know fans are frustrated by it. And it was a talking point of, um, you know, I think at first there, there was a lot of, because he came from the Lakers and um, so many people said that deal was one-sided and they ripped off the Lakers and they ripped off magic. Like there was this kind of narrative of like zoos a steal and for a lot of the season, that was kind of the case. But then towards the end of the season and eventually him getting benched, fan, some fans started to turn on him and, and doubt him and, and kind of, you know, kind of question how good he actually was. Um, so this season, he bumped up to 64.1% uh, shooting in the restricted area, which is much better. Um, you know, he, he got in better shape over the offseason. Uh, he, he really worked on his body and, and just kind of, refining the role he knew he was going to have. And I think, you know, I wrote about his screening earlier in the week. Um, I don't know how you feel about screen assists, but he was first in the league in points generated off of screens. 
and he was third in the league off of screen assists per game. Now, both of those are per 36, so I, you're doubly not going to like that, this metric. <laughs> but with, with Zoo, he, he plays 20 minutes a night, so it's hard to compare him to a Rudy Gobert. Or So so you know he was actually tied with Rudy Gobert for first in, in points off of screen assists, and, and then he was third behind Rudy Gobert and someone else in screen assists per game. So... I just again, like I just think he, he had this chemistry with Kawhi in the pick and roll that that really led to a lot of dunks and, and fouls and stuff at the rim for him. But I think overall, Zoo, we do focus on the defense and the rebounding, and, and that's really more of his role. Um, but I, I do think as a roller, he got better this season. He looked more confident. He was better at finishing at the rim. Uh, you know, he he had multiple you know posterization dunks on guys where you're just like, I didn't know he had that in him. And overall, I think like for a young guy, you know, tw- just turned 23, like he he did show improvement this season. He, he did progress back to where he had been as a Laker finishing. And I think kind of the next step for him is really going to be improving his shot. So he, he can potentially stretch to the, th- you know, I kind of view him as potentially a Brooke Lopez in Milwaukee and, and probably a poor man's Brooke Lopez in Milwaukee. Um, you know, I don't think he's ever going to have the post game or necessarily the defensive mobility as Brooke Lopez, but I think they have some similarities and he has shown he could shoot out to like 18, 20 feet. Now it's stretching that to the three point line. And I could kind of see him almost being a three and D center at some point with his touch, but he also has the size to finish inside. So, you know, that's probably a couple years away from happening if it ever happens, but, um, how did how did you view his finishing and sort of his progress throughout the season? Yeah, I think the most important thing that Zoo did was work on his hands and being able to catch. And mm-hmm. I know some of it had injury issues last year and things like that, but I, I, I did kind of worry a little bit about him being able to catch the ball on the rolls and, and things like that. And I think, you know, he's he's progressing nicely. I'm listen, I'm not as high as you are on your cousin. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to offend the family, but, uh, you know, um, but I think he's a serviceable big man in the league. I think he has a a chance to be really good. I think, you know, you brought up screen assist. Sometimes what what kind of bothers me here a little bit about screen assist is sometimes it's about the guy coming off the screen versus the person setting it. And, 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 and that's why it's an, it's an imperfect stat to me in that sense. It doesn't mean He's not a good screener because I think he does a great job, you know, setting the screens. And I think, you know, you touch on it with, you know, him and Kawhi developing that chemistry because, you know, teams, listen, a pick and roll between Kawhi Leonard and Ivanka Zubac, Zubac, sorry, uh, they're going to trap Kawhi off of that. They're going to live with the ball going to Zoo. So, you know, he had to get good at it. And I, and I think he did a great job with that this year and he's, he's progressed, you know, properly the, the real question is going to be, you know, as his development grows, will his minutes grow with it? Because that's really the only way you can get true development, in in my opinion, with players. I think Zoo's done a good job. He's he's done well as a rim protector, although I've always said they need another big, and I was happy when they picked up uh, Joe Kim Noah on the longest 10-day contract ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, they're, they're in the – process there of, of turning him into a pretty good player like he's at the very lowest you know his floor is 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 a solid big man you know whether it's starting for just you know and 20 minutes kind of in the role he's in now or, or coming off the bench like 
he's going to be a serviceable big man in the league for a long time. And I think, you know, we're just continuing to see that growth, you know, over, over time, hopefully he'll get more minutes though. Yeah. And I, I think this, we can transition now into Montrez Harrell because the Clippers obviously have a pretty big, you know, at some point there's going to be an off season, right? The, right. I, I hope. Hopefully, <laughs> um, We need a break, man. <laughs> yeah. we, we need a break from our break. Um, but at some point there's going to be an off season and, and Montrez Harrell is, you know, he, he and Marcus Morris are the Clippers two key free agents. Uh, Jermichael Green could enter that conversation if he opts out. I have a feeling he's going to, not opt out and, and remain a Clipper uh, for, for next season. Uh, Reggie Jackson is also a potential free agent, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put him in as a key free agent yet. Even though he's played well, I, I think th- he's probably going to look for role and, and money over anything else, as he should, as he's now like deeper into his career. But Montrose Harrell and Marcus Morris are the two guys. Now, Marcus Morris was not a Clipper to start the season, so we're not going to go into him. Uh, but but Trez, you know, the Clippers have this really important decision on, on what they're going to do with him. You know, kind of what what is his what's his ceiling? What's his ceiling on this team? What's his ceiling around Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, and, and how much they're willing to pay him? And I think on the one hand, now that the, there is this stoppage in play, and regardless of of if the season returns or not, there's going to be a hit to the salary cap and. As the Athletics, John Hollinger and Danny LaRue you know, wrote a, a few weeks ago, they were kind of projecting it out at around $8 million uh, per team. So I, I think the projected salary cap was like 115 for next season. So it might be down around 107 But that was with pure, purely only regular season revenue lost, no postseason re- revenue lost. So if you factor in the postseason under a canceled season or, or a condensed postseason, you're now looking at maybe 10, 11, 12 million dollar salary cap hit. And if that happens, you know, you can make the case maybe it's more likely the Clippers keep Trez because there's going to be less overall cap space. But you could also say the, the money might be more even even more important to him because now he's probably going to be getting less than he was going to get uh, in, in a more robust market. So if he was going to get say 17 million annual value and maybe that's high maybe that's not um you know now he might be looking at like 14 million annual value or or you know 12 million annual value and if the clippers are like we want to try to give, get you at 10 11 well he might take the 12 and go somewhere else and you know he's not a restricted free agent so he can walk and, and go wherever um so I, I think the clippers have a very interesting kind of i wouldn't even say it's a dilemma but just a decision to make with montrez harrell how they value him, how they view him. Are they cool with a Trez Zubots center tandem moving forward with really Zoo is almost a placeholder starter? Um, because I think as long as those two are playing together under Doc, it does seem like Doc trusts Trez a lot more. Um, he, he will play him a lot more. Um, you know, we've kind of pressed him a bit in the media of certain matchups. It, it's kind of seemed like Zoo makes more sense and he's continued to rely on Trez and, and, and you know, kind of defend Trez publicly. So as long as Trez is on the team, he's going to be basically the starting and closing center who's averaging 25 to 30 minutes a night. And if that's the case, then you got to properly adjust how much you're paying him. So that's all stuff for maybe a a later podcast, but that was kind of the the preamble going into the the Trez conversation. So for me, 
Trez was someone that it's interesting because he's progressively played more minutes each season and you've seen his per game numbers go up. But again, to go back to your favorite stats per 36, his per 36 has actually been the same the last three years. Um, So the reason I sometimes like per 36 is it's almost just the same as like per minute, right? Like, you know, you're just, you're, you're kind of standardizing it. So you, it's easier to compare season to season, some you know sometimes. So with, with tre- you know, and if you want to make the case that since he's playing more, you know, m- maybe if he played thirty six minutes a night, his his numbers would go down a little bit. Like you could maybe even make the case some of his o- other stuff was was more impressive. But anyway, regardless, Trez's numbers have been about the same the last three years, even though his, his per game have, have jumped up because his minutes have jumped up. So I thought his his free throw shooting was was interesting because he shot sixty four point three percent last season, and the Clippers actually went nine and ten in, in the games that he attempted five or more free throws, but shot worse than sixty five percent, which is about his season average. So basically, when, when Trez had a decent amount of free throws and he had a below average shooting performance, the Clippers were under five hundred. So. You know that's a small sample size. It's tough to say that there's a lot of correlation there, but I just figured his. You know, as this team, the stakes raise. He's a, he's the closing center. There's a lot of close games. His free throw shooting could potentially swing a game, swing a playoff series uh, under certain circumstances. So this season, he bumped up to 65.8. Not much of a difference, but slight improvement. Uh, but interestingly enough. In the same context of, of games where he attempted five or more free throws and shot sixty five percent or worse, Clippers actually went twelve and four. So I clearly know nothing. This was one of the ones where I was just <laughs> off on. You had to put um, the one. You had to put the one you knew was going to be wrong, just so you could prove that exactly. you're not perfect. You didn't want to have perfection on you. So you're like, let me put this out there. I know it's wrong. I'm just going to put it out there so that I feel like I, other people can feel like I'm more <laughs> like the common man. I understand. I do but, it all but, the time. I, I will say to defend myself, and, and this is now taking percentage out of it because um, I, I didn't add a percentage qualifier here. Just in games where Trez shot 10 or more free throws, the Clippers went six or se- uh, six for seven, or sorry, six and seven out of the 13 games. So they actually were under 500 in games where Trez shot a lot of free throws. Now it's kind of weird because he actually shot better in the losses than the wins. So again, maybe there's no correlation here, but I just thought it was an interesting thing because Trez is a foul magnet. He has increased his free throw rate progressively. That is one thing that actually has jumped up. Um, So I don't don't know where you want to take this, but um, you know, I think eventually Trez ideally gets to somewhere in the low to mid seventies as a free throw shooter. He's never going to be an 80% free throw shooter, but if he could get to 71, 72%, 74%, I think that's kind of where you want him as someone who's drawing so many, uh, you know, free throws. Yeah. I'll, I'll make two quick points with that about Trez. The first one, you know, is the free throw percentage, you know, obviously you want that to go up, especially as his free throw rates going, you know, as God, I cannot speak today, guys. Sorry. Uh, as much as his free throw rate is going up, you want his percentage to go up with it. Right. So you feel like, okay, well, he's getting more free throws. He's going to make more. We're going to be, we're going to be good. But I think there's also a very added bonus in that, you know, him drawing more and more fouls helps the team so much just because it puts the other team in trouble. It gets other guys in foul trouble. It puts you in the bonus earlier. So 
the next time Paul George is going for a defensive rebound and it's a loose ball foul, now he's going to the line and it allows you to get free points there real quickly. You know, so there's there's a lot of value in being able to draw fouls, even beyond not necessarily making free throws, but just gets you in the bonus quicker. It helps the team out so much more and it makes a big difference there. The other thing that I wanted to touch on with Trez, and you brought it up talking about, you know, his future for for next year. You know, this is, again, why it would have been really interesting to see in the playoffs how their their small five-man lineup would have worked with, you know, um, Jermichael Green and Marcus Morris playing four and five and Trez basically on the bench because if they found a lot of success with that, it liberates them from feeling like they have to pay Trez. You know, and that's a lineup that they could stay with for a while. And and that's something they could run more with the next season and things like that. So this playoffs would have been a really interesting one for Trez in terms of his future as the Clippers, because I think it would open up eyes one way or the other going like, wow, this five, this this lineup doesn't work at all. We we better get Trez back in there. You know, I think there's. There, there would have been intel the, the Clippers could have gotten out of this in terms of how badly do they need Montrez for next season. Um, and I'm up in the air with that. A lot of times I'm like, yeah, it's all right. You know, like it's, it all comes down to how much you got to pay him. And of course, he's one of these guys that's just going to end up having to take a hit because of this, because the cap's going to be lower and things like that. He's probably not going to make as much as he was hoping. Um, but I think that's the interesting thing there with Montrez, you know, you know, I think the, the key stat of him, you know, it's, it's not so much the percentage, but the fact that he's getting fouled a lot more is allowing to, the team to get to the line more. And that's probably why you're seeing, you know, his, the, the, the wins go up when he gets fouled a bunch, just because, Hey, that means Lou Williams is getting to the line every time somebody bumps him off the ball and things like that. So I think that all helps the, the clips in that sense. Uh, I think you're right. And I, I think I know I'm right. You <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> the, the, the Trez conversation is interesting just because I, I have this theory on Trez and, and I've kind of, you know, I, I tend to repeat myself on this podcast, but um, I hope you guys in, enjoy hearing the same points. Um, Trez to me is one of those guys where against 90% of the league, he looks like an all-star and you see him play crappy lottery teams and he just obliterates them and will put up 25 and 12. And I'm sure if he was on his own team or a team where he was starting and, and featured more, you know, he could be putting up all-star level offensive numbers. Um, you know, he's, I mean, he would need a good pick and roll partner, but aside from that and, and to his credit, he's all, he's improved as a post-up player. He's improved as a face-up player He's improved as a one-on-one scorer where he know, you know, two years ago, he needed Lou Williams to set him up. Even last season, his one-on-one game was improving, but he still was pretty reliant on Lou, um, you know, a little bit less, but but still somewhat reliant on Lou. This season, he has had games where Lou's been out and, and he still put up 20 plus or, or games where, you know, something happens and, and he comes in for Zoo earlier than expected and and he's playing with the starters and, and not playing with Lou and, and still scoring. So he's not relying on Lou anymore. Um, I, I do think it helps to have a good pick and roll. Like I think of him in Dallas with, um, like I think Dallas would be a great situation for him. Put him with Luca in the pick and roll and then have a big like Porzingis who can protect the rim and stretch the floor. That's exactly what you want next to Trez and, and there just aren't many of those guys in the league. So I think like, 
Dallas would be a perfect situation for him, depending on how much they'd want to pay him. But I, I think with, with Trez, like 90% of the league, he destroys them. He looks like an all-star. That 10%, you know, if you kind of look at some of the numbers, th- that's where he struggles a bit. And, and those teams more often than not are the best teams in the league. Right. And I, I just think him going against Milwaukee, the Lakers, the Nuggets, the Sixers, like those would have been the teams in the playoffs that I think he would have struggled potentially against. And those were the, the, the teams you, you need him to not struggle against as kind of your main five. So whether, again, the solution was playing Zumor or, or just going smaller and playing Jermichael and Marcus at the five, um, I do think the Clippers would have probably had to have gone in a different direction in those series. And we'll see if those series happen. But at that point, I'm kind of like, well, if this guy can't necessarily play, like if you can't envision him being your ideal five against the Lakers or the Bucks or the Nuggets, like what, like, you know, what is the, the ceiling on how much you want to pay him? And, and is that 12 million? Is that 15 million? Like what, you know, where's that line of like, do you want to pay basically a guy 20 million to be a backup center? Like probably not. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I, I do wonder also for him, like, does he want a starting role and would the Clippers reevaluate the starting situation or, or would they keep him on the bench when it seems like for, for as much as doc trusts him and, and plays him, he has also kind of said like, I prefer him off the bench. So, you know, does Trez want that kind of joy of, of starting and, and, you know, hearing his name in the starting lineup and being kind of treated as one of the top two or three guys on a team versus being number four or five, depending on how you look at it. So, I think these are all questions that will play out in the coming months. And again, we don't know if the season's coming back or not, but I just think the Trez discussion is so interesting because to me, he's one of the pivotal free agents this year, which shows uh, kind of how bleak this class is, right? Because, you know, ideally he's, if you're, you know, ranking like 2021, he, we're probably not even talking about him or not talking about him as a top free agent. Right. That's such a deep class, but for, for 2020, He's probably a top 10 free agent, or at least in that conversation. Top five. And I mean, he's, it's, it could be top five, yeah. Um, it's a really weird class. So for, for, for Trez, uh, you know, I am very interested to see what, what happens. Uh, but speaking of Trez, let's, that 20-minute that tangent really derailed this podcast. Um, but but you know, look, you, you guys have nothing else to do, so I hope you're enjoying this conversation. Yeah, uh, well, let's let's you know we'll, we'll we'll hit them up a little bit. You can also leave a little something for them to make them go read the uh, the article here. We can't give yeah, away touch the on. can't well, give maybe, away the maybe we'll for free. Maybe we'll split this into two podcasts as, as well. Maybe that could be kind of a a compromise here. But let's quickly hit on um, Lou Williams. His so last season, thirty three percent assist percentage was a career best. This season, that dropped to 29.9, his second best uh, of his career. So, yes, a slight decrease, but it kind of made sense. Before the season, I kept being asked who was going to sacrifice. And I I know earlier in the podcast, I said Paul George looked to me as as someone who might have to maybe sacrifice more than you would think. But to me, the clear guy was Lou Williams. Um, There was no way he was going to lead this team in usage percentage or, or shot attempts or points like he was going to be the clear guy to become the number three, if not the number four. And and he and Trez kind of went back and forth all season, battling for like that kind of third spot in the offense. Um, but yeah, I mean, Lou's numbers across the board went down. 
points, minutes, field goal uh, attempts, usage percentage, um, even field goal percentage. Uh, but, but then his assist percentage dipped. And I think part of that was just having the ball less and, and you know, kind of not having to facilitate as much with Kawhi and PG having the ball more and and later Reggie Jackson. Uh, But then also teams really zeroed in on the Lou Trez pick and roll this season and they schemed for it more. They defended it differently. They really loaded up on it. And I think you saw that in the playoffs. That's what Golden State did. They basically said, we're putting four, if not five on this action and just saying anyone else, you know, Lou, you know, find your shooters through a thicket of arms in, in the paint and, and try to kick them out, you know, kick out to them. And we trust Andre Gudala and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson to rotate out to these guys. And, and, you know, you outside of maybe Landry, you guys don't have a, a high level shooter that we're afraid of. And, you know, so we'll have you guys beat us from the perimeter, but you're not having Trez, you know, finish on us. You're not having Lou pull up to the left. Like, so I, I think the, a lot of teams use that Warriors blueprint really effectively and, and were able to kind of dull the sharpness of that Lou Trez pick and roll attack. Um, so I think that was another thing. Trez also just being more of a one-on-one score this season and, and not having as much of a connection with Lou was another part of that. Uh, so there are multiple things that I think kind of led to Lou having a slight decrease in assist percentage, but it still was probably higher than um, you, you might have expected. It was, again, the second highest of his career. And I think just kind of a sign of Lou's progression under Doc Rivers and Doc trusting him more as a primary ball handler, as a facilitator, and Lou's just kind of late career surgence as a clipper. Um, you know, I think it's it's been really something fascinating to watch. Like You don't see guys get better in year 13, 14, 15 most of the time. They've kind of already, and especially a guy who's never been an all-star, a guy who's not a Hall of Fame player, um, you know, to, to see him get better this deep into his career it is really fascinating. Yeah, and I think this is an important thing is teams really were able to lock in on that. And it's been a, a, a tough year for him more than anybody else in terms of figuring out where he fits in the offense. And, you know, I think that's why the Reggie Jackson – uh, pickup was so important just because it allowed him to kind of be the second ball handler and, and, and attack teams rotating and and not have the burden of being a the full-time playmaker, which isn't really where I think you want to see Lou. I think early on in the season, there were hopes that, you know, maybe Landry Shamit could do it. Maybe, you know, could run a little bit of more point guard. Maybe Terrence Mann would have been ready. Maybe Rodney Magruder or whatnot, but it just never really f- panned out for anybody. And Lou had to carry that load, and I don't think he really thrived in it. I think really with Reggie Jackson, with the Reggie Jackson pickup, I think you began to see a little more comfortable Lou. Um, you saw him getting more open corner threes and things like that. So, I mean, the pick and roll side of it, you know, look, teams were going to lock in on that. Like, that was just going to be their thing. And when Kawhi and PG go to the bench and they turn the ball to Lou and, and say, hey, just run the pick and roll with, with Trez – I think that's where teams were like, we're not going to let them beat us. This is our time to really kind of make up some ground, whether we're down or, or, or to build a bigger lead if we're up. And I think that's kind of under that increased scrutiny. I think that's where Lou kind of struggled a bit. And then on top of it, just having to be the ball handler the whole time was just too much for him. I think this is this right now. I think the past seven to eight games, I think we're beginning to see 
you know, Lou Williams kind of being back to being Lou. And I think that a lot of that had to do with Reggie Williams, oh, Reggie, Reggie Jackson. God, I'm struggling today, Yovan. <laughs> uh, Reggie Jackson there. But I think that's where we have, you know, a lot of interesting overlap there. So I'm not surprised his assist percentage went down a bit. I just think, you know, again, teams began to put more focus on this on them and on this team in general, just because, look, they came in as the number one team. Everybody was picking them to win a championship for the most part. So, you know, everybody's focused on everything the Clippers do, and that that's where that kind of game planning goes, and people were just keeping an extra eye on Lou. And then the added responsibility just kind of was something he couldn't really hang with. There, there is a Reggie Williams, by the way, for, for yeah, the record. I, I know. <laughs> I, just, I just can't help myself, guys. Uh, okay, and then let, let's let's – wrap up with um couple well we'll we'll, we'll just touch on these we, we don't even have to get too into them um Landry Shamit last season had a really weird drop in his two point percentage when he went from the Sixers to the Clippers he was I think shooting I don't have it in front of me but shooting something like high 40s low 50s in his two point percentage as a Clipper, he shot 32.2% on twos last season, which is just an abysmal mark. And it was so weird because Landry was such a good three-point shooter, probably had the second-best three-point shooting season of a rookie after Steph Curry. And you know his, his three-point percentage was almost 10% better than his two-point percentage, which is just kind of weird. Um, he, he really struggled finishing around the rim really struggled from the mid-range where he shot like 17% on mid-range jumpers. Um, so I, I wrote about it earlier in the week on my young role players story about Landry, Trez, and Zoo all getting better in, in different areas. But Landry really took a step up as a two-point shooter, um, shot 49.4% uh, this season. So that was a 17% increase um, for, from his time with the Clippers last season to, to this season. And just really, I, I felt... His his pacing, his, his timing on drives, his finishing at the rim. Last season, he exposed the ball a lot and got blocked a lot. He still got blocked a, a decent amount, but I think he, he just kind of figured out, uh, you know, better timing on drives and, and how to attack, um, you know, bigs and, and rim protectors and, and that that different stuff. And then he also got more comfortable in the mid range, and, and the Clippers ran more stuff, you know, more actions to get him mid range jumpers. He did also realize that his mid-range jumper could be a weapon. And because he's not necessarily the best finisher, he could actually kind of use the threat of a drive into pulling up, stopping on a dime, and hitting mid-range jumpers. So Landry improved in that regard. I don't know if you have anything to add on that. The only thing for me with Landry is, you know, the shooting stuff's all great. It was what he needed to prove, and he didn't this year, was that he can be a ball handler. And I, I mean, I just too many times I would see him bring up the ball and then just turn it over, you know, with, with just bad passing and things like that. And that's the area for him, for me, at least for him to take the next step. That's where I need to see him get better at. I need him to be able to take that pressure off of Lou Williams so that they don't have to bring in a Reggie Jackson or a Reggie Williams. Screw it. Um, and I think that's, you know, the, the area where I think Landry had to have gotten better. And I just haven't seen that improvement yet. That's a good point. And it was something that I, I wrote about heading into the season. And I, you know, I, I thought 
I thought he he did show like there there was moments of of progress, but it wasn't consistent enough. And I, I think the I mean you saw the Clippers progressively take him off of the ball more. Like even in the preseason, they had him running some point, and it, it was it was kind of a, a talking point. Was like you know we we need some extra ball handling, we need some extra playmaking, and Landry was someone that they had looked at for that, but that did not really manifest. It, it does seem like. As of right now, his role is going to be more of that sharpshooting guy. And I think when we actually, it, what was kind of weird was really the guy who suffered the most. If you look at the last seven, eight games and really since they got Reggie Jackson, it's been Landry. Landry's been completely marginalized. Um, you know, his, his minute, like he's become the 10th guy. He, you know, he, he was kind of fluctuating between a starter and sort of like the eighth man when, when he was coming off the bench. And now he's, you know, Jermichael has been playing more, Reggie's been playing more, and Landry's been playing less. And he's kind of hit that tenth man role. He's had a couple games where he's been in single digits when he was actually third on the team in minutes for most of the season. So Landry has really seen his his role become marginalized since Reggie Jackson has been, you know, added. He and and Landry kind of has been a guy this season where he does need some touches, and, and you see. The games where Landry's getting three, four shots, he's not necessarily as effective as when they're getting him seven, eight, nine shots. And he's he's a very it seems to be he's a rhythm guy where if you can get him more looks, he will kind of heat up and, and start to shoot better. So there was a stretch right before they added Reggie, where you know they had those games in Boston and Philly and, and some other games before the the All Star break where. Landry was playing great. You know, he had a nice stretch where he was consistently, you know, 15 plus points and, and shooting the ball really well. But that all went out the window the second they added Reggie Jackson because it moved Lou off the ball. Lou's basically been in Landry's role. And you know Lou's going to play. Lou's not going to be benched. So with Reggie playing a lot of point, it's it just moved Lou up and, and really kind of taken Landry out. So I think if the season does resume, that's going to be something the Clippers figure out and you know have to figure out and even next season if, if they bring back Reggie or they bring someone else in that Reggie role like I don't know where Landry fits in unless they move on from Lou which there's no indication they're going to so I don't know kind of how he fits in long term with with this team right now because it was a very weird season for Landry um, it did feel like he, he never had the you know Doc talked about it the first half of the season he never had the role that he had last season and, and it was hard for them to kind of integrate him fully into the offense. So um, I think that's something to monitor is just kind of what happens with Landry, how the Clippers try to readjust and, and re-implement him because, you know, it, it he, he was injured to start the season and he kind of struggled. Then they finally figured it out and then they added Reggie Jackson and completely changed his role. So I think that's something to, to monitor. Uh, Rodney Magruder, well, th- this one we don't really need to get into, but <laughs> last season I, I thought it was just interesting. 43% of his two-point field goals were assisted. The Heat had progressively moved him from a small forward to a point guard, and he played a lot at the two and the three and then played most of his minutes last season at the point. This season it was actually kind of a regression where he moved back to the three, actually played most of his minutes at the three, his second most minutes at the two, and almost played zero point guard. Um, so 71% of his two-point field goals were assisted. He was much more reliant on other guys setting him up. He was much more of a cutter. And um, I, I just think that kind of was – and Rodney Magruder, to me, has been the most disappointing clipper all season. 
Um, you know, he has not really added anything. Uh, you know, like there's been he's had moments of, of you know where his hustle and his defense has helped, and he actually defended Luka Doncic really well. And I know we talked about that a while ago when we did our Clippers Mavericks preview <laughs> pod, which you know was a month ago at this point, basically. Um, but Rodney really just didn't bring much to the table. I, I think was a disappointment and they signed him to a three-year deal and, and that's not, you know, wasn't much money, but it's not looking like a great deal. They still got two more years on that. So um, I, you know, I, I don't have much to, more to add on, on Rodney. Yeah, no, I think it's just a product of position change. You know, you're the point guard balls in your hands a lot more. So not a lot of your shots are going to be assisted versus obviously when you're the small forward, it's going to be different, but you, it, yeah, I don't have much for him. Sorry guys. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, we actually, did we skip? Oh, we, we skipped Pat Bev. Um, which you'd love that. Uh, oh, so. boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> I had nothing to do with that, Pat. If you're listening, that had nothing to do with me. Uh, Pat. So, so Pat, <laughs> so Pat last season posted a career best 56.1 true shooting percentage this season, uh, 55.4, which I think was his second best. Um, he had really weird seasons where both seasons last season, it actually was stretched out longer, but he started the first, first month, month and a half of the season shooting terribly. Uh, it was actually, it was actually worse, worse this season. I remember, uh, last season, he started the first month and a half of the year, 30% three point shooting this season started the first month, 27% three point shooting just could not shoot and, and was missing, Wide open shots, you know, most of Pat's shots are wide open, just not shooting the ball well at all. These, you know, last, I don't know, what, three months, two and a half months of this season, he was at 45% from deep. Same thing the season before, last two and a half, three months was that he might have even been at like 47%, just ridiculous three point shooting swings from Pat. Um, But one of the big things for Pat the last two seasons has been cutting out. He loves, you know, these, these kind of wild, eight foot floaters and, and runners that he would take. And this season he actually shot much better at the rim. Um, you know, he upped that from 49% last season to four, uh, to 59% this season. So that was a big swing for him. Um, and, and really refined his, his shot selection where now basically 81% of his shots were at the three point line or at the rim, which is kind of what you want from a, a modern guard, especially a guy who's not a great scorer, you know, kind of, okay, you're going to take threes or you're going to take shots at the rim if defenses play off of you. But you know, so I think Pat overall, you know, because as kind of the fifth guy in, in most lineups, defense and, and Pat, Pat said this in, in training camp in, in the preseason, like he knew defenses were going to play off of him. He knew if you're game planning, he's the guy you leave open. And it was important for him to make open shots, to keep defenses honest and to make them pay if they were going to ignore him. And again, for the first month, month and a half of both of the last two seasons, he did not do that. And then oddly in this like late November, early December stretch, he just goes on a tear and, and you know, 45% three point shooting is like elite elite. Like that's, you know, pretty much as good as it gets. Um, again, it's a lot of it's open. He, he's not really shooting off, you know, the catch or, or movement and stuff like that. But he is a spot-up shooter. He's a really good corner three-point shooter. And he hit some big shots. He, he hit a game-winning shot against the Celtics uh, in L.A. earlier in the season. So Pat is one of those guys who's a big swing guy for this team. When he's firing on all cylinders, he's, he could be 
potentially their second best three point shooter. Uh, but I think overall there was a slight dip from last season, but he pretty much was where he was last season. And I think overall what was kind of what the Clippers needed from that position. Yeah. I think the big thing for Pat, you know, beyond the, the three point shooting and being, you know, more deadly and, 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 and on top of it is, you know, that ability to make shots around the rim, like that's not something to sneeze at that 10% jump and his ability to, to hit shots around the rim is huge. Cause if he gets into the paint now, he's a little, he's more of a threat. And that again, will draw defenses in and he'll be able to find guys on the kickout as well. So like, you know, whereas before when he's shooting like, what was it like 45% from uh, around the rim? Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, 49% around 49. the rim this year. It's up to 60. Like that's a huge jump. And that's a big, big thing. His shooting is huge. I mean, that's, that's obvious. And, and we've all seen it. And the other thing that, you know, and, and maybe I slept on this part of Pat's game, but like, he won a lot of games this year for the Clippers with his offensive rebounding. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like he would go in there flying in either from the corner or from the wing and just dig out an offensive rebound on huge, huge possessions. And I think that was something that's just so valuable for the team to just kind of get extra possessions, come up with a situation where that's deflating for the defense. You come up with the, playing great defense for 20, 24, 23 seconds. You do a good job. You force them to take a bad shot. And you're the one thing you're not able to do is get a rebound. And then he's usually the smallest guy on the court. So like the smallest guy on the court comes in and, and, and digs it out. Like that was just an attestment to like how tough Pat was, how tough Pat has been really all through his career. But that really opened my eyes up a lot more this year. And that showed it. Maybe that's just a fault of my own on sleeping on that. Uh, and it, it, you know, the, the past few years on Pat, but like his rebounding and his finishing at the rim have been phenomenal for the team. And that's just, I mean, I mean that those are winning things and, and, and the offensive rebounding stuff to me, those are winning plays that, you know, can turn a series and can turn a, a, a playoff series and really get you going. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I am a little bit afraid of him, so I am going to kiss up to him a bit now. <laughs> like he is one of my favorite guys to watch just because he's got a lot of toughness in him and he's going to go after everything and he's going to go hard on every play. And I think it shows really, and also his improvement in the game and his acknowledgement of like, I got to be a better shooter. Like the way I'm going to get to stay on this court is I got to be able to knock down shots because for this team, you know, we talked about it with Jermichael green. It matters for a lot of these guys. If they're not knocking down shots, it's very difficult to keep them on the floor because that allows defenses to collapse on Kawhi, to put more pressure on Paul George, to put more double teams in front of Lou Williams and things like that. They need to be able to knock down those shots, and it's so critical. Like He's one of the most important guys on this team. 100%. Uh, I'm with you. The, the rebounding, again and again, you know, he, he averaged a career high you know, rebounding percentage this season. And I think he's just one of those guys who kind of whatever you need. Um, again, like I, I went through the top 10 moments of the Clippers season, uh, I think last week. And one of the the top, I, I want to say it was like moment three or four for me, what was that win against the Celtics in, in which Pat hit the game winning corner three, uh, but I'd forgotten how good of a game. I, I think his game was, he had like something like 
14 points, 16 rebounds, like oh, yeah. eight, I got or, it eight or right nine, now. eight or nine, seven, assi- like, seven assists, three steals, two blocks, and only two turnovers. Like, and, he he had, were, and he had the game winning shot. And, yeah. and, and he, he had multiple key offensive rebounds that game. Um, and, and he had, he had a couple big, I think he had another big three to, to help send it to overtime. And he, he just was huge that game. And, and he was a guy who, Really, like you know, I I have multiple conversations with, with um, you know people around the team, and and then also just people in in you know kind of covering the team and, and Clippers Twitter and stuff that I, that I really respect. And there's kind of this con- this thought of like who's the third most important Clipper, and off the top of my head, I would have probably said Lou or Trez, right? Because those guys provide so much offense and how important it is, but. The more I thought about it and the more I talked to certain people who who felt it was Pat, I was kind of like, yeah, it is Pat. Like Pat, you know, it, of, obviously Kawhi and PG are, are the top two. But like after that, if, if you were, you know, ranking kind of the indisputable like importance of guys, I think it like if, if Trez is out, you can just play more Zoo or play more Jermichael or, you know, kind of readjust that. If, um, you know, if Lou's out, Okay, well, now you're probably going to have to tax Kawhi and PG a little bit more, but you know you could involve Landry in the offense a, a little bit more. Maybe now you run more stuff for Marcus Morris. Uh, but really, like there was no replacing what Pat could do as like the you know he really is the ultimate three and D point guard in the league right now. Like I guess like non All Star level. I mean, maybe a guy like Kyle Lowry or, or someone like that is obviously better. But in terms of like role players. I can't think of a better three and D point guard off the top of my head. Um, you know, he he doesn't need the ball. He can fit next to any you know ball dominant wing as he did with James Harden, and now he's doing with Kawhi and PG. Like he he's adaptable. Um, he can run the offense. He's not great at it, but he can do it. Serve it. You know, he can run pick and rolls. He he can find guys. And defensively, um, you know, he he's probably been a little overrated over the years. But he is a clear plus defender. All the defensive metrics paint him positively, paint him as a really good defender. And I, I think, you know, he is somewhere in that, you know, all defensive conversation. You know, you probably won't get it, but he, he's in that mix. And I, I think to have that from a point guard and, and to just have no ego in, in terms of like he's cool with taking two shots a night and, and not really complaining about it. Um, that, that's very rare. And, and I think he is a very valuable guy and probably the third most important Clipper. You, you've seen it actually in the record where I, you know, I, I'd have to count this up, but the, the games Pat's missed, they're under 500 as well. And, and they've really struggled without Pat, even in games when Kawhi and PG have played together, they've lost some of them without Pat. So Pat is very important for this team. He had a very specific role that no one else could really replicate. And um, let's, let's close it there. I mean, there's a couple more quick ones with like Pat Patterson and, and Terrence Mann and, and three point shooting, but we don't need to dig into that. Uh, we've gone an hour and a half. We um, saved the best for last, Pat. This was supposed to be a 30 minute podcast. <laughs> I'm still laughing at it. <laughs> I, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Y'all have nothing to do. Come my, on. <laughs> my, my editor is going to love this. Um, <laughs> That's my uh, fault. I took us off the rails no, no, pretty no. early. No, it was fun. It was fun. Look, I I, I enjoy this. Um, I it, it's you know this podcast probably should have come out three days ago. So I, I hope you guys enjoy more content. Mo, thank you so much. Um, I I hope I didn't take you away from anything important. 
probably um, not for, for, from from social distancing with your friends um, <laughs> uh, but wh- where can people find you and your work um well you said i'm one of the podcasters on the athletic you can find me on nerd or she wrote on the back-to-back pods uh from time to time i end up on buds i host brody and the beard for anybody who has the uh Houston Rockets fandom as well as Clipper fandom. And that, that, that Venn diagram, there's no Venn diagram with Rockets and Clippers. I might be the only one because I podcast. (laughs) Maybe Austin Rivers fans. That that could be the one exception. There we go. Um, But uh, you can find me there. You can find me on Twitter, Moe Dekeel, D-A-K-H-I-L underscore NBA. I also write for Bleacher Report and I have a few uh, articles here coming out pretty soon. So uh, yeah, just follow me on Twitter, man, and you'll, you'll see all my stuff. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Yovan Buha. That's at J-O-V-A-N-B-U-H-A. If you have not subscribed to The Athletic yet, we currently have a uh, 90-day 90 90 free trial. Uh, so if you have not subscribed and you enjoy this podcast content, now is the time. Again, 90-day free trial. Set a little reminder uh, on your uh, phone or, or computer if you're nervous about re- remembering. And I, I think you, if you sign up, I think you will remain a subscriber. We've been doing some great content in um, kind of this limbo period of no sports. Uh, I really think, you know, we've probably been putting out the the best content from the podcast to the written stuff uh, overall. So definitely stay on top of that. Um, Check that out. Uh, I've, I've been writing three to four Clipper articles a week still. I don't know how I'm doing it. I'm really (laughs) like in two months from now, I don't know what I'm going to be writing about, but um, I think, you know, it, it's been fun in the meantime to try and, you know, revisit, reevaluate stuff like this and, you know, kind of going back over questions and, and looking at each player's season. Uh, so thank you for listening. I will be back next week and I will have some interesting content next week. So, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, but thank you as always for listening.